I mean, I get so happy when I when I hear that song and mm-hmm. um, just thinking about what the the jubilee was about was that mankind had had sold their birthright for one morsel of meat. And what that means is, is we sold our inheritance, which was God himself and his life and him giving us his life and bringing forth his life in us by his doing. We sold that for one morsel of meat, like it says about Esau. He sold his birthright, which was the blessing of the firstborn, for one morsel of meat. What that means is he sold the blessing of the firstborn for the blessing he could gain through the strength of the flesh. That's why it speaks of the meat. So he sold the the birthright, the blessing he would get by being the firstborn or from the firstborn for the blessing he could gain by the strength of his own hand. Right. And we know that the picture of Esau is pointing towards Jesus because Jesus is the firstborn, the firstborn from the dead, it says. Right. And that's the jubilee. When God raised Jesus from the dead, it was the declaration of the jubilee. It was setting us free from the life where we were laboring, sweating by our brow, trying to gather life to ourselves. And what God come and did is he restored our inheritance to us through the firstborn from the dead, Jesus Christ. And that's what happened on the Jubilee. When you look at Israel, when a person was indebted, what it meant was is they sold their inheritance, right? So they had an inheritance from God that they didn't do anything to get. Like the inheritance, if you read, was just marked off for them. Here you go. Well, then they sold their inheritance away, and they entered into a life of servitude where they're laboring, right, for life. Instead of just living off the inheritance God gave them, right? And that's a picture of what mankind did. We sold our inheritance, which is God himself, right? To be co-heirs with Christ, to be co-heirs with Jesus, is to have inherited God himself. You have inherited God himself, all of God. You have inherited all of God, right? God himself is dwelling inside of us. We are the temple of the living God. God, the God who can't be contained, the God who who can't be held in a a box, man, he has decided to contain himself in us, right? That's a magnificent thought when you start thinking about that God himself dwells in us. And so the Jubilee was the declaration The way that it went down was on the Day of Atonement. And atonement means restoration. That's what atonement means. It speaks of God restoring something. And so the atonement happening right before they blew the trumpet of Jubilee was God restoring man to their inheritance, setting them free from a life of labor and toiling. Well, do you know what was causing us to labor and toil for life? Death. We were in bondage to death. We were being bruised by death. We were taken captive by death. Death blinded us to God with us. We couldn't see God with us. We couldn't see God standing there telling us, listen, man, you ain't got to work for life. I see that death over you, and I raise you my eternal life. I raise you a life that can even overcome that death that is taking you captive and causing you trying to build a life for yourself. And so what God does on the Day of Atonement is he comes and provides himself a lamb. And he provides himself a lamb to absorb the death that was taken us captive into himself. So he could, so we could watch him overcome death right there in our midst. And then what happened was, is he would manifest our inheritance, which was his eternal life, which was his immortality, which is himself. He manifested that right in our midst in the body of Jesus Christ. Here is your inheritance, yes. right? 
The very glory of God is your inheritance. The immortality of God inside of human flesh is your inheritance. The resurrected, glorified, ascended man Jesus is the picture of God restoring your inheritance. Come home to your inheritance. It's what the trumpet of Jubilee sounded. You're not left in the world to labor to build yourself a life. You're not left here alone to try to gather peace to yourself. If you're sitting in the place where you need peace, where you need joy, where you need love, you're not left here alone trying to figure out how you can get those things for yourself. If you need a deliverance, you're not an orphan. You have a Father in Heaven whose good pleasure is to give you deliverance. It's part of your inheritance. Peace, love, joy, deliverance, all those things is contained in the life of God. Right? That's the Jubilee. Look out for the free man singing, He delivered me. Delivered me from what? What did he deliver the Hebrews from? Do you know what the Hebrews were left doing right before he delivered them? Making bricks without straw. Yeah. <laughs> you ever tried to make bricks without straw? It's not possible. And it was a picture of human beings trying to build immortality through their own strength. One morsel of meat. We were Esau trying to build ourselves the life of God through our own strength. It's impossible. You can't do it. It's impossible. It can't happen. And so God delivered us from the bondage that death had us in. Well, we were all the time trying to build ourselves a life that could be so good looking that that life could serve us with peace and love and joy. Where we were all the time trying to preserve ourselves from the corruption and death in the world. He delivered us from that by offering himself as the lamb and conquering the death that was reigning over us and restoring us to our inheritance and showing us, isn't this what you've been working for? Isn't this what you want? Right? It's yours. It's your portion. God is your portion. God. God. I know it sounds like an intangible thought, but God is your portion. And you are his portion. And that's what the Jubilee is declaring. Right? It's declaring that to you. God himself. You start to see God. Hallelujah. Does that make any sense? You guys follow the... That's why I get happy about that song. And that's why I love the, that those worship people, because I find that they understand the Spirit. Yeah. And they're singing about the Spirit, right? Yeah. And that just... That was one of their famous songs, about the Spirit. Yeah. Yeah, the Holy Spirit song. Holy Tomorrow I'll probably play a different song that is uh, by them that also captivates me. But I just can't get around sharing that. And then, you know, the sound mind for the Spirit of Fear. Like Paul would come and say that uh, we do not have the spirit of fear again unto bondage, right? But we have the spirit of adoption whereby we cry out, Abba, Father, right? And the spirit of fear is the thing that Adam had after he ate from the tree and he saw his nakedness and he was filled with fear. The reason why he was filled with fear is because he was dwelling in darkness. He couldn't see that God was there with him and that God would clothe upon him. He couldn't see that God was his father anymore. He thought that he was an orphan. He thought that he had been abandoned by God and left in the cold, heartless little world. He felt like, I'm all alone in the cold, heartless little world. I just want to be loved. Is that so wrong? Right? He just wanted to be loved. He wanted someone that loved his life. He wanted someone that cared that he was naked. He wanted someone who hurt with him when he was hurting. And he didn't think that person was God. And so the spirit fear came upon him. He didn't have a sound mind. He had a mind filled with chaos. And he thought that God had abandoned him there. And so he got busy trying to clothe himself with life. Well, we have not been given the spirit of fear. We've been given the spirit that adopts us. That doesn't mean that you weren't God's. And now you can become God's. 
God's children. What it means is that the Spirit come to show you that God is there with you. That's how it adopts you. If you read, it says the spirit of adoption causes you to do what? Cry out, Abba. The spirit of adoption does what? It leads you to the place where you do what? Cry out, Abba. How does it lead you to the place where you cry out, Abba? Because the spirit leads you to the place where you see God with you, having conquered death in the body of Jesus' resurrection. And you see that that's God with you to clothe you. Because I promise you, this world would do everything it can to uncover your nakedness. It will do everything it can to try to point at your shame. It will do everything it can to try to convince you you don't have what you need for life. And if you don't have what you need for life, it must mean God ain't with you. Right? Because that's the conclusion our, our minds come to. Right? If life isn't present, we make a quick jump. God must not be present. Because if God was present here, then there would only be life. And so the Spirit adopts us. What it means is it leads us to the place where we see God with us clearly. Right? That we see God having conquered death in the body of Jesus' resurrection. And we see God come to swaddle us from our blood. Right? Isn't a baby born in blood? Yep. Right? When David talked about being born in sin, he wasn't talking about being born with a sin nature. No. He was talking about being born with death reigning over him. Babies are born in blood. Blood is a sign of death. Right? We were born in blood. Death was reigning over us, mankind. And God come and swaddled us from death. He swaddled us with his life. Right? That's where the Spirit leads you to. And you see that you're not a lamb that's been led away to the slaughter. Because that's how it feels when we go through hell, isn't it? That's how Adam felt when he saw himself naked. He thought, I don't have a shepherd. What does the psalmist come and say in Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Yea, though I walk through the valley that's shadowed with death. Yea, though death surround me everywhere, that death is not lifted up in my heart. The God who's with me that is the shepherd of my life is lifted up in my heart. My cup runneth over. Right? That's what the death wants to do to you. It wants to convince you that you're a lamb without a shepherd. And that's what Paul's talking about. I'm not a lamb being led away to the slaughter. The Spirit has adopted me. The Spirit has led me to the place where I see God is the bishop and shepherd of my life. And I see that he has cared for my life and protected my life in the only way that could actually do it. He raised Jesus from the dead, never to be able to die again. And he poured out his Holy Spirit to pitch me within and without with his incorruptible life. Right? And now you begin to live like the psalmist in Psalm 23. The death in the world is not lifted up in your sight. You don't see a giant in the earth. You see the giant's been decapitated. And you're no longer looking at a giant that looks insurmountable, but you're looking at the God who, de- who decapitated the giant of death and who did it at the cross. Right? Isn't that what David did? Didn't David cut off the, the head of the giant? Weren't all the Israelites filled with shame? When you go and read there, it says that Goliath was uncovering their nakedness. And he was saying, if you really are God's people, send someone out. Isn't that what the devil was saying to Jesus? If you really are the son of God, come down off the cross. You know, David planted Goliath's head underneath where Jesus was crucified. 
Golgotha, the place of the skull. It's called the place of the skull because that's where David buried Goliath's head. That's why it's called Golgotha. Right. So Jesus comes as one greater than David, and he slays the giant of death right in our midst, the giant that we were all petrified of. Nobody beat death. Ain't nobody come out of the grave before. We're standing just scared of this giant. What's going to happen in my life? Look at all the things that can happen in my life. Look how this world can hurt my life. We were so afraid of death, and then Jesus comes and slays the giant. And now we no longer see death as a giant. We see the life that has conquered death, right? And so it's not death that's lifted up in our heart, which is what it means. Yea, though I walk through the valley shadowed by death, I fear no evil. It doesn't mean I'm not scared. That's a branch of that. That word fear means to revere something. It means for something to be lifted up in your heart. So the psalmist is saying, even though I'm surrounded by death, and just so you know, that psalmist, it's speaking of Jesus. Psalm 22 is Jesus surrounded by death on the cross. And what he says there in Psalm 23, he keeps talking. He says, even though the bulls of Bashan have circled around me, even though they're gaping on me with their mouth, even though they've stripped me naked, even though the sin of the world has come upon me, even though the darkness is surrounded me, that darkness, that death is not lifted up in my heart. I do not revere that death. Do you know what I revere? The life that's in the Father that I share with the Father from the beginning. The life that overcomes death. The life that conquers death. That's what's lifted up in my heart. A life that even should death come upon it, it will even consume death to the uttermost. A life that when it was poured out in Genesis, when there was darkness and chaos upon the face of the deep, that life brought forth light and removed the darkness and brought forth order. That's what the psalmist is saying. The incorruptible life of God. When he says, I will fear no evil, the death is not a giant in my sight. For I see a life that even overcomes death. And that is lifted up in my sight. That's how the psalmist, even when he's nailed to a tree, Jesus is the psalmist. Even when Jesus is the man after God's own heart. I mean, they say David was a man after God's own heart. Well, then John would come and say that Jesus was the only one in the heart of the Father. Jesus is the psalmist, and there he is on the cross. And do you know what he says? This death, the death of this cross, is not lifted up in my heart. I lack nothing. You know why I lack nothing? He even says, my cup runneth over. You know why my cup runneth over? Because I'm busy with the God. The Father's in me, and I'm in the Father. And we're busy with the life that even overcomes death in the flesh. He knew what was coming. Go read Psalm 16. You will not suffer your Holy One to see corruption. Neither will you leave his life in the grave. That's what he was busy beholding on the cross. That's the spirit of adoption. The spirit of adoption is leading you to the place where you see, I'm not a lamb being led away to the slaughter. The father is the shepherd of my life. I see he shepherded my life by conquering death in the flesh. And he poured out of himself, himself, the spirit of himself. And that spirit is dwelling in me. And that spirit is shepherding my life perfectly. That spirit will not suffer me to see corruption. That spirit will not leave my life in the grave. That spirit, we know what that spirit is going to do in us. We've seen it in Jesus. It's not a question. Jesus prayed in John 17. He said, no more do you not know what my father's busy with. Because he calls you friend. And now from here on out, you will know what my father is busy with. You will know the thoughts and intents of his heart for you. You will no longer quote a verse in Jeremiah. Jeremiah and just say, I know the thoughts and intents you have for me, O Lord, but you're about to see the thoughts and the intents because I'm going to come out of the grave in glorified immortal flesh that can never be touched by sin or death again. I'm going to come out of the grave having a life that overcomes this world and then the Father is going to pour out of me himself into you and that spirit is going to dwell in you and it's going to all the time be telling you that this is what the Father is going to do in you. 
This is how the Father gets down. You want to know how he gets down? He consumes death to the uttermost. He leaves to, to the, he, he, he doesn't, he's relentless. He will not repent, Hosea says. He will take vengeance on death and he will not repent till it is completely consumed. That spirit's in you. It's a consuming fire. Do you know what it's working to consume nonstop? Death. Yeah. Just like light consumes darkness, it dispels the darkness. The spirit of life is in you. Do you know what that spirit of life does? Whether you know it's doing it or not, it's warring against death. And it's doing it inside of you, right? The only thing you needed to do was agree with the testimony God gave in Jesus, right? Which is that God has come to be the father of your life. And he has come to father his life in you. And if you see that God himself came to place his name behind your name, that he claimed you when you thought you were an orphan, and he showed up at the orphanage and said you were never an orphan. Somebody stole you from the house. Right. I've been looking for you. Yeah. You've been living as if you don't have a father. Well, here I am, and I'll prove to you that I'm your father, right? And then what does he do? He claims man out of the grave and demonstrates man to be from him, right? Sat at the right hand of God. That spirit is inside of you. We, man, we see the death, and it's like we forget about the spirit. We forget about the spirit to consume death in the resurrection. And it's like our minds are so consumed with the death. Well, if you think you're going to see the death, but if you see the death, see the death as being dead. That's the whole point of the cross. That's the whole point of the serpent in Numbers being nailed to the pole was God was crucifying the bite of the serpent. He was nailing the bite of the serpent to the cross so you could see the blood run out of death. So you could see the strength of death come out of it. And you could see the weakness of death. Death is not strong. No. Death does not have eternal life. No. Death is not going to exist forever. It's actively perishing. It is passing away. You are not perishing. You are not passing away. Death is. And that's what the psalmist saw. And that's what the spirit of adoption is. It leads you to the place where you see that the death is passing away. I'm not passing away. And you begin to see life differently. When you feel the stress of the world, you ever feel the stress of the world and you feel like an, an angst sometimes? Mm -hmm. Right? Listen, something we were talking about this earlier, but something beautiful has happened to me because of the spirit of adoption. When I feel that pressing, when I feel that angst, I no longer see it as a sign that my life is being overcome, right. but I see it as a sign of life being born in me, yeah. of coming forth in me, just like the travail of a woman when she's giving birth. Yeah. It does not look like it's real nice for her in the moment. But what's it a sign? of? Is it a sign that death is overcoming? No, it's a sign that life is coming forth. And so that's what I see now because of the spirit of adoption. I see God as my father and I see what his life does. And I see that his life reproduces after its own kind. And his life is reproducing after its own kind inside of me. And so when I feel a pressing in, when I feel pressed beyond measure, I no longer think this weakness I feel is a sign that I'm being overcome because I see the life of God can't be overcome. So now when I see the weakness, I see it as a sign that life is coming forth yes. in me. Right? And it fills you with the grace. It fills you with the strength in the midst of experiencing weakness because your eyes are filled with the life of God. The life of God is lifted up in your sight, not the weakness you feel. It doesn't matter if you feel weak, God's strong. It doesn't matter if your flesh is weak, God's life is strong. And you can even feel weak, and when you feel the weakness is when you're the strongest. When was Jesus the strongest? And he looked the weakest. And he made foolish the wisdom of the world. Right? Hallelujah. That's the spirit of adoption. It leads you to the place where you cry out, Abba. Yeah. And the only way you can call God Father is if you see my man showed up to care for your life. That's right. 
The only way you could call God Father, because we all, we all need a specific kind of care. Oh, yes, we do. And even when we don't know what kind of care we need, the Father knows. Right? And when you see, he, sh he took thought to care for your life. Jesus says, take no thought for your life. What you shall wear, what you shall eat. He says, for your Father has taken thought. And the spirit of adoption leads you to the place where you see, the Father has taken thought of me. The Father sees me. The God who sees you. He sees you. He sees you. He loves you. He's taken thought to care for your life exceedingly abundantly above all you could ever ask or think. And he doesn't leave you wondering. Like sometimes my parents would tell me, well, you don't know what's best for you. You just have to trust this is what's best for you. And then you wouldn't know what's going on. No, he don't leave you in that place. He shows you the care he gave for your life in the resurrected Jesus Christ. And now he comes. He doesn't just say, well, figure it out. He shows you the care he gave you. And then he says, well, let me walk with you now. I'll put myself inside of you. I'll make you my temple. I will come and I will abide in you. I will anoint you with my Holy Spirit. And I will teach you about this life yeah. that I've put inside of you. I'll teach you about my life. I'll show you my life. I'll show you what it does. I'll show you what it looks like. I'll show you how it cares for you. I'll show you how it overcomes the thing that try to destroy you. I'll show you how it produces peace and love and joy in you, even in a world that's filled with darkness. I'll show you how it's a light that can't be overcome by darkness. And I'll keep showing you. I'll keep talking with you. I'll keep persuading you. I'll keep fathering my faith in you. I won't just father my life in you, but then I'll father my faith in you. I'll give birth to my thoughts in you. And we will search the deep things together. The deep things is eternal life. We will search the power of this incorruptible life I have put inside of you together. Right? That's the spirit of adoption. I mean, when you call somebody father, what, what are you saying? You're saying my life has come forth from them. The seed that is my life has come forth from them. I mean, I have earthly parents. My dad's name is Larry. Do you know why I call him dad? Because my life came forth from his loins. And so the reason why you, the Spirit leads you to the place where you call God Father is because you see your life is born of Him. And when you think of your life, you no longer think of the life you see in the world or the life you have because you no longer think the world is the father of your life. But you say God is the father of your life. So when you think of your life, you start to think of, well, what kind of a life does God have? Because that's the seed where my life has come from. That's my life. And you begin learning about your life, right? I mean, we spend so much time, guys, in the world learning about the life that's in the world. We're experts. I know. We are experts. Between all of us, we probably know everything about everything in the life in the world. All the ins and outs of every different instrument you can think of. Schooling, education, investments, right? Music, governments, politics. I mean, we know it all. We are experts. But the world's not the father of our life, guys. We come from a heavenly country. We're not under the governments in this world. We're under the government that's upon the shoulders of Jesus' indestructible life. And God is trying to lead us to the place where we start inquiring of him about that life. Because that's where our life has come from. We're citizens of heaven, man. Yeah. And that doesn't mean we're not here. And that doesn't mean we can't enjoy things here. But what it means is, is when we think of our life, we ought not be thinking of the life we see in the world. Yeah. And we ought not be living as if our life is but dust, mm -hmm. as if it's earthy. And it's subject to decay. It's subject to corruption. No, it's not. We've seen the life we have. It's not subject to de de decay, decay and corruption. It even came out of the grave. That's what the spirit of adoption does. It brings forth Abba, 
It means something when you say Abba. It's not just like some theoretical thing. Oh, yeah, God's the father of everyone. <laughs> yeah. No, it speaks something about the life you have, yeah. what kind it is, where it came from, what it does. That's why Paul would come and say, nothing can separate me from the love of God. Not shipwreck, not peril, not sword, not famine. He went through all these horrible things that happened to him. And he said, nothing can ever, none of those things can ever convince me that God doesn't love me because I see that God has poured out of himself his life inside of me through the man Jesus. And I see God has given me a life that even overcomes death and overcomes this world. So how can any of these things tell me God doesn't love me when he came and gave me something that will cause me to overcome all these things? If God be for me, how can any of this be against me, he says. That's the spirit of adoption. That's what the spirit of adoption comes to persuade you of. Yep. Right? Yeah. Does that make any sense? And now we'll have announcements. And now we'll have announcements. And now we'll have announcements. <laughs> now we'll have announcements. Yeah, no more poverty. We're no poor no more. No, I'm good. I'm all right. Um, one, of the, one of the things that, and a lot of you guys know me, I don't know everybody, but some of you already know kind of the way that I like to talk about God, but I, I like to, to get to the heart of God. I like to bring everything back to the heart of God, because I think that's what's been lost. And, yeah. and religiosity, if you want to call it that, and churchianity, we're very uh, well-versed in the principles and the things that we need to do. But what's gotten lost in all of that is the heart of God. And so I like to take everything back to um, the heart of God. And, and tonight I want to take something we're all very well acquainted with back to the heart of God and get to the nitty-gritty of, of what it is. Because I think people will already have a, a good understanding of this, and it might help them to, to hear what I want to say. But I, I want to talk about um, communion and what communion is mm -hmm. and the heart of God behind communion and what, that, what that's actually all about. Um, and if you look in, in ancient Israel or the ancient Hebrew, they love telling stories, right? Our friend Brad back here is a great storyteller, <laughs> right? I love the way he tells stories. Well, in the, the ancient... The ancient culture, you're talking about Noah, Enoch, all these guys, Abraham that would then come, Shem, all these people, they love telling stories. And the reason why they told stories was to bring God to their remembrance in their lives with God. That's why they told the stories, right? Well, communion is the same kind of a thing. It, it's, it's supposed to tell a story to us. And so when we take communion, it's supposed to be bringing to our God to our remembrance and our lives with God to our remembrance. It's trying to tell us a story, right? And so communion is only so good that you have an encounter with the Father. Communion is only so good that you have an encounter with the Lord Jesus, right? And I don't say you can't be healed when you take communion, because if you encounter the Father, you will be healed on a number of different fronts. If you encounter the Lord Jesus, you will be healed. And that's really all you need, right? But communion is only so good that you encounter God. And if you're busy taking communion, trying to get healed, you forgot about the heart of God. You don't even know what communion's about. You're busy trying to work a principle to get something, yeah. right? Yeah. Or you're taking communion because you're supposed to take communion. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Right? Well, what are we remembering? Paul said we should take communion. And so we completely lose sight 
of the heart of God behind communion and what really happened there. Because when we take communion, it's a story being told. It's God telling us a story. And he's telling us a story about himself. And he's telling us a story about something he did and why he did it and how it affects our lives. And that's what we're supposed to be remembering when we take communion. We're not supposed to be thinking, I need to get healed. I've got to do some communion, right? Or we're supposed to take communion every once in a while, so let's do it now in church. That's not what you're supposed to be thinking about. And the more I thought about communion, the more I thought, you know, I think a lot of people have probably completely lost sight of what communion is. You can take communion without taking bread and drinking wine. Mm -hmm. You can. You can. Because it's about partaking in the body and blood of Jesus. Well, Jesus said that you worship him in spirit and even in truth. Right? He said the true worshipers of God will now come. Those who worship God in spirit and in truth. What that means is the way you partake of the body and blood of Jesus is by belief. Or by bringing to remembrance what the body and blood of Jesus was all about. And so I just want to pose everybody with this question because the way the human mind works, right? You'll start twisting on it already. And you have the Holy Spirit in you. But what is the body and blood of Jesus all about? What does it mean when we take communion and we're partaking of the body and blood of Jesus? What is that trying to remind us of? What went down there? What are we declaring when we do it? Because we're actually declaring something. But if we don't even know what we're declaring, are we actually declaring it? Or are we just doing a ritual? Has it just become a ritual, a ritualized thing, like so many things, right? Because the traditions of man do what? Make the word of God of none effect. And so all of a sudden, you lose sight of what it's all about. You just know you're supposed to do it, and it's good, right? So Jesus, in, in Luke chapter 22, verse 19 and 20, and this is the Passover when he says this. And so I want to draw a picture of the Passover Because the Passover is deeply connected to what communion is, right? And so Jesus, they're having the Passover supper, and they're breaking bread and drinking the cup of wine. They did that before Jesus was raised from the dead. All the Jewish people, they gathered every year on the Passover, and they broke bread and drank wine. And they did it to remember something. They did it to bring God to their remembrance, and they did it to bring their lives with God to their remembrance. And they were remembering a very specific thing. So let's just look at what it says. And Jesus took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave it unto them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise, also the cup after supper he took, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which was shed for you. And so, like I just said, that was the Passover. And what they were doing during the Passover is they were remembering the lamb God provided. And they were remembering the lamb that caused the destroyer to pass over their houses. Right? right? And that liberated them from the bondage of Pharaoh. When they drank, when they ate the bread, they were remembering the body of the lamb, the meat. Jesus said, my flesh is meat indeed. We all know Jesus is the actual lamb that came to take away the sin of the world. And so they were remembering that God gave us this lamb. And God told us to offer this lamb. And we would offer this lamb and we would prepare the meat and we would eat the meat and we would put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. Putting the blood of the lamb on the doorpost was partaking of the cup. That's what it meant to partake of the cup. And so that's what they're doing. So Jesus says, listen, guys, you've been doing this to remember the Passover and remembering how God gave a lamb. 
and how that lamb caused a destroyer to pass over you. You've been doing this to remember that. Well, from now on, when you do this, when you think of the destroyer passing over you, when you think of the lamb God provided, do this in remembrance of me. Because I am actually the lamb that God has provided in order to cause death to pass over you. So no longer think of the Passover and think of the Exodus, but rather think of me. Because the Passover was speaking of me and that God would provide himself a lamb to cause death to pass over you, to cause the destroyer to pass over you. God would provide himself a lamb that would cause you to overcome that old dragon, the devil, the serpent. And if you didn't already know and you thought the destroyer in Exodus came from God, didn't come from God. The destroyer didn't come from God. Paul calls a destroyer in 1 Corinthians 10 the devil, the serpent. And so the Israelites overcame the destroyer. What did they overcome the destroyer by? The blood of the lamb. Well, what does Revelation 12 say? And they overcame who? By the blood of the lamb. The serpent. That's the destroyer. That's the destroyer. A sound mind for the spirit of fear. Um, so the, the Israelites, they, you know, they prepared the lamb. They ate the meat. They put the blood on the doorpost. The destroyer couldn't come into their house. So what, it, what, was, what was actually being said when they put the blood on the doorpost and they ate the meat? Because it meant something. It wasn't a ritual. It had significance. And so I wonder what, what, it, what is it? look like when you partake of something that's been sacrificed or given as a sacrifice? What is that declaring? Because it actually declares something in the scriptures. In Numbers chapter 25, we'll read through verse, verse 1 through 3. And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. Even when I say the people began to commit whoredoms with the daughters of Moab, what do you think that means? Because we all have a, all of you guys have a dictionary in your heart. Do you already have a definition of what a whoredom is? Yeah. And probably every one of us in here thinks that that means that they were having sexual intercourse with them. Yeah. Guess what? That's not what it means. They were having an intercourse, but they weren't having intercourse like we think of sexual intercourse in a physical body. They were having a different kind of intercourse. Look what it goes on to say. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself to Baal Peor. That's the whoredom. You've gone a whoring after other gods, the Old Testament scriptures say. You've committed adultery on God is what the scriptures say. So when it says they committed whoredoms with the daughters of Moab, it doesn't mean they went and laid in the physical bed with them. What it means is the daughters of Moab were performing sacrifices, and they were eating the meat that the daughters of Moab had sacrificed, and they were drinking the cup that was blessed by the sacrifices of the daughters of Moab. And then Numbers says, in them doing that, they were joining themselves to Baal Peor. That's called intimacy. It's called intercourse. So when eating the meat sacrificed to the idol and drinking the cup that was part of the sacrifice to the idol, drinking blood. They were joining themselves. They were having intercourse. They were fornicating with Baal Peor. They went a-whoring after other gods. They had intimacy with something other than God. 
You guys see that? You following that? What it's talking about? The sacrifice specifically. So when Israel in the Passover, when they put the blood on the doorpost, that was them partaking of the cup of the lamb. And when they ate the meat from the lamb that was offered, that lamb was offered as a sacrifice. And so when they ate the meat of the lamb and they put the blood on the doorpost, they were declaring the lamb. And do you know what they were declaring? They were discerning that they were partakers with God himself. They were partakers with God and his indestructible life. They were joining themselves to God. What they were saying by the blood on the doorpost and eating the meat of the lamb is that we are one body with God himself. That God himself will come and sup with us in this this house. We are joining ourselves to him and he will keep our house. He will keep us from perishing. He will cause death to pass over us. That's what they were declaring. Yes. One body with the Lord. Yes. That's what it meant when you partook of something sacrificed. You're one body with the Lord. That's what you're saying. And so God comes, those were just shadows. And so God comes and does something. He provides himself a lamb through Jesus Christ. He prepared himself a body so that he could offer himself and give his own body up to be broken so that we could partake of the sacrifice that he offered, which is him sacrificing himself for you. God himself laid down his life for you. God himself shed his own blood so he could serve you with his life. And what happens is, is when God offers himself as the lamb, and he sheds his blood. Do you know what's going on when we take communion? We're partaking with him in his body. We're declaring ourselves to be one flesh with God himself through the body of Jesus Christ. And so when we're taking communion, we're declaring that we are the temple of God. God himself has braided himself together with us. We are one flesh with God and his indestructible life through the body of Jesus Christ. Amen. That's what it means. So when you take that bread, you're not just eating some bread. When you drink the grape juice, you're not just drinking some grape juice. It's supposed to remind you, you're one flesh with God. You're one flesh with God. You're having intimacy with God. You've had intercourse with God. The two shall be made one. Isn't that what it says? The two shall become one flesh. That's what communion was about. God offers his own body up to be broken, right? God likes your body. God doesn't think your body's despicable. God's not waiting for the day you can get rid of your body and that you can go be a spirit and he can be happy with you. The flesh is not evil. And when I say the flesh, I mean this body. The flesh in the scriptures is talking about the carnal mind. The carnal mind is evil. Having a body is not evil. And what God said is, I like these guys' bodies. But there's a problem. There's a destroyer in the earth. And so this destroyer is warring against their body and bringing decay to their body and bringing fear to their heart. But I like their body, so I don't want them to die. But I can't become one with them because they don't see me. My image has been marred in their heart. They don't see the love that I have for them. They don't see that I am the husband that they need. They don't see that I will only ever be good to them. My name has been defiled in their midst. My name has been blasphemed in their midst. So I need to sanctify my name in their hearts so that in my name being sanctified in their hearts, they will join themselves to me and I can come and dwell with them inside of their body and I can keep their body from perishing. I can keep their lives from perishing and I can cause death to pass over them. Ezekiel talks about God needing to sanctify his name. And he says, I need to sprinkle their hearts with the pure water. 
I need to wash and give them a new heart. What's the new heart? A new heart is a heart where the image of God has been cleansed, where we're no, God's image is no longer defiled by the death that's in this world. And so God's like, I mean, you know when you go house shopping? I mean, you know, when you find the house, you're like, that's nice. I mean, my wife and I lived with my parents for like four years when we started the church. And we could, man, God bless my wife. My wife is like a saint. It's not easy being married to me, right? I mean, you see what she did to me because, you know, no, I'm just joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. A big tree saw fell on my face from like 30 feet. <laughs> I'm joking. But I almost feel like what Paul said to the Galatians, that you didn't despise me because of my appearance when I was with you, but you received me as if I was the Lord Jesus himself. Because when Paul went into Galatia, he had just gotten stoned and left for dead. And he got up. And I don't know if you know what you look like after you got stoned and left for dead. You look like Rocky Balboa. Yeah. Yo, Adrian. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so Paul got up. And, and back in that day, the people knew if you were stoned to death, that was not a positive thing. That was like a scarlet letter. You're a heretic. And, you're, and so if a guy came to you talking about God and they had just been stoned to death, it was like the evidence you should not listen to them. And Paul said, you received me anyway, though I had blood pockets under my eyes and I looked like a reject. You received me anyway. I feel like that with y'all. No, nobody even said, what happened to your face, dude? <laughs> like, you guys just pretend like it's not there. <laughs> Some of you are like, well, I've never seen you before. For all I know, that's just what you look like. Hallelujah. <laughs> uh, but that's, that's what, the, what communion is about. Acts 20, verse 28. It's a shocking thing when you read this in the scriptures. But, you know, if you go read Acts chapter 20, verse 28, it says God himself shed his blood. Mm -hmm. we all, I mean, if I say Jesus is God, everybody will probably agree with it. He's the word yeah. that was from the beginning. Mm -hmm. He has no beginning. It, it, it says he created everything. He did. Okay, well, he's got to be God then if he has no beginning and he created everything. Mm -hmm. We all agree Jesus is God. But then when we see Jesus on the cross, we tend to lose sight of that's still God. Now we just think he's a man. And we don't just think he's a man, but we've been told he's a man taking the punishment of God. That's what defiled the name of God in our midst, oh, yeah. is we thought God was the punisher. We thought God was the condemner. We thought God was the accuser. We thought God was the one uncovering our nakedness. We thought God was the one warring against us because of our sin. Well, guess what? You don't want to be joined together with someone who's an accuser, a punisher, a condemner, uh, all those things. You ain't trying to be one flesh with somebody like that. I mean, even in this world, ladies, you trying to be married to a dude like that? No. No. In fact, what do you know? Let me get away from that dude. And if you dating a dude that you think is pretty nice the moment you find out that he's a scumbag you're busy trying to get away from him why because his name has been defiled in your heart yeah. and even in relationships I do lots of marital counseling one of the biggest things I have to overcome in relationships is if one of them has transgressed the other one because their image has been defiled in their heart and they have such a hard time having closeness again they have such a hard time having intimacy and connecting well that's what happened with God because we thought God was the punisher. He's the condemner. He's the accuser. We didn't see that's God on the cross who rather die himself than let us die. That's God on the cross. And in fact, the only way he could be our God is if he come and took our death into himself. That's how you're the God of a people who are dying. You come and you deliver them from death. And the way you deliver them from death is you lay down your life for theirs. And that's how you show them that you're their God. That's right. 
And that's how he cleansed his name in the earth and sanctified his name in our hearts. God himself shed his blood so he could serve us with himself. God is on the cross. You know what he's saying to all of us? This is my body, broken for you. Because he wants you to partake of that. He wants you to see what's really in his heart for you. He wants you to see the love he has in his heart for you. And he wants you now to become one flesh with him by believing on his love. You become joined together with him. And why does he want you to be joined together with him? In the Old Testament, it talks about spreading your skirt over somebody. God said he walked by Israel when they were in their blood, and he spread his skirt over them. To cover them. To cover them with what? His life. And so God's busy wanting to come and make us his home. He was shopping for a house, just like we all shop for a house. My wife and I looked for like five years. We couldn't find a house. Finally, we walked into this house, and it was like immediately, this is the house. The bedroom is like three times the size of all the other houses in the area. The bathroom, the closet, this is the house. We knew it. You know, when you get happy, you find the dream house. We all even know that phrase, the dream house. Where's my dream house? One day I'll have my dream house. Well, this is my dream house. Well, if I could have the house of my dreams, this is what it would have. We all have an image. So did God. Yes. And you know what his dream house was? You. Amen. You. But he's got a real big problem. You are, you're not seeing him as being the lover of your life. You're not seeing him as your husband. You're seeing him as your abuser. And so you ain't trying to be one flesh with him. You ain't joining yourself together with him. So he comes and offers himself as a lamb. And that's what Abraham said about God. When they said, where's the sacrifice? You're going up the mountain without a sacrifice. Abraham said, God will provide himself a lamb. Yep. That's right. And so God come and provided himself a lamb so that he could be sanctified in our midst and that we would partake of him. Right? And we would join ourselves together with him. And then we would become the dwelling place of God. That's why Paul would come and say, Know ye not that you're the temple of the living God? What does that mean? That God has made you the place where he calls home. You're the place where God lays his head down to rest. Amen. He found his rest in you. That means he come and set up shop and he ain't selling. That's right. He ain't selling. And the reason why he come and set up shop in you is because he wants to keep your house. Mm-hmm. He likes your body. He doesn't want it to die. He's not flipping it. He ain't flipping it. (laughs) He's into glorifying. Right? And the reason he's into glorifying, the reason he wants to get inside of your body isn't self-serving for him. It's to cause the death in this world to pass over you. And the only thing that's going to cause the death in this world to pass over you is if he becomes one body with you, one flesh with you, just like a husband and a wife become one flesh. The two shall become one. It's declaring something about us and God becoming one so that death can pass over us. Glory to God. It says the blood of Jesus is the cup of the New Testament. The New Testament, we get so we get so lofty in our thinking. The New Testament, it's the scriptures. It's there's the old and then there's the new. But you know, like my parents, um, I recently had to deal with um, their will. And I had to, like, get it all in order and make sure it was all in order. You know, and as I was doing that and looking at it, do you know what it says on their paperwork? Testament. Mm -hmm. And we've gotten so mechanical, again, back to the heart of God. We've gotten so mechanical in our understanding that we think of the New Testament mechanically. And we don't see how Hebrews talks about a testament is not in force unless the blood of the testator is shed. Mm -hmm. Unless the testator dies. 
And so the New Testament is actually telling you about the will and testament of God. And do you know what the blood of the new covenant is? The blood of the new testament is telling you that God himself shed his blood for you. That God's will has always been that he would cause death to pass over you. That he would serve you with himself. That he would come and take your death into himself. That he would come and lay down his life for you. That he would shed his blood so his life could run out of him and it could be poured out on you. That's what the New Testament is. It's the testament of God. It's telling you what his will is. Do you know what his will is? That you not die. And that you live forever with him. Not serving him, but him serving you. It says that the lesser is blessed by the greater. That's right. Jesus, what Peter said, we got to wash your feet. we got to serve you. What did Jesus say? No, you won't have any part in me. If you don't let me serve you. You don't got no life to give God. That's right. It's okay. He's the one with the seed. Yeah. You bear the fruit. It's okay. There's no shame in that. But you don't have no life to give God. He's the one that has the life to give you. And so I know we struggle to think of it this way. But listen, man, God's got to serve you. And not serve in the sense that we define it carnally. But God's the one that's going to pamper you with life. I promise you, my parents are like 75, 80. You know who, who's serving who now still? They're still serving me. Yeah. Those of you that got kids, how many of them are serving you? Or are you still serving them? You got adult kids. You're still serving them. You still got to take care of their lives. You think, does this ever end? I, listen, I know you've thought that. My parents thought, does it ever end? And then they saw with God, no, it doesn't. It doesn't end. Right? But God thinks different. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And so God's busy experiencing life, pouring himself out for us. He's not thinking it's some shameful thing for him to serve us. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Mm. That's the blood of the new covenant. It's the father trying to tell you, this is my body that I willingly gave up to be broken for you. Right? This is me providing myself as the lamb. Because the thought of you dying and perishing, let it never be said. That's what the New Testament is trying to tell you. And we made it so mechanical. Well, we got a good, a new deal with God now. We got a new contract, don't you know? Right now he's not going to punish us anymore because he's got to... He's got to stick with this new contract. The New Testament does not mean new in the sense that the promise of God didn't exist from the beginning. The promise of God existed from the beginning. The New Testament is not that there's a New Testament that comes from God. It's that the Testament that always was from the beginning of time has now manifested in the body of Jesus Christ. The immortality, the will of God that was always for us to be clothed in his life, to not be clothed in death, that will has manifested now in the person of Jesus. That's why John would even come and say, a new commandment I give you, but that isn't new because it's that which has been from the beginning. That's, right. That's the same thing with the New Testament. The Old Testament is not a different testament. It's the same testament of God. That God does not will for you to die. And his will is to give his own body up as the lamb to be broken for you so that death could pass over you. We just see the manifestation of that testament and that will in the man Jesus now. It's no longer afar off. It says that Abraham and Moses and all the patriarchs saw the testament of God afar off. Where do you think they saw it? And what is it that they saw? God's will to give his own body up to be broken for me. Abraham, God desires to give his own body up to be broken for me. 
God will overcome the deadness in my body. God will overcome the deadness in Sarah's womb. God has a life that even overcomes death in the flesh. What did Jesus say? Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. Yeah. And what does it say that Abraham saw? God can even overcome death. God can even raise the dead. God will give his own body up to be broken so that he can dwell in me and I in him and death pass over me. Hallelujah. <laughs> it's like, the, you ever heard of the fairy tale with the three little pigs, right? They build their houses. One builds the house on the straw. I don't know the whole thing, right? But then the big bad wolf comes and huffs and puffs and blows their house down, <laughs> right? Well, that's, death was like the big bad wolf. The serpent, that old dragon, the devil, whatever you want to call it. He's like the big bad wolf, and he was blowing our house down. And so God had to get it right to get himself inside of us. Yes. Because that yes. will keep our house from being blown down. That's right. Right? You see, the one little pig was cool. Huff and puff all you like, bro. My house is built on this strong foundation. Right? Go get your friends. Come huff and puff all you like. Go get some oxygen. Get you some asthma medicine. Whatever can expand your lungs. You need some steroids? Go get it. Come back. Let's see what you got. Right? That's right. <laughs> Ain't so bad. Ain't so bad. Like yes, it is Rocky Balboa. Ain't yeah, so bad. It's so bad. Listen, God, really, we think we need so many things. Really, it's a simple thing that we need. We need a revelation that we're one flesh with God yes. in his indestructible life through the body of Christ. That's what communion is supposed to remind us of. And I just want to say this. If we'd been taught that, and we were reminded of this kind of a thing every time we took communion, guess what we'd be persuaded of? Uh -huh. What it actually means to be the temple of the living God. And we wouldn't just be thinking, well, God doesn't think I'm ugly anymore, or God's not mad at me anymore. What we would see is it means that we've been joined together with God, one flesh with God, that we're one body with God in his indestructible life. You know when you start thinking? God has come and supped with me. That means death is going to pass over me. So when death comes to the house, I'm not busy thinking that death can blow my house down. I'm busy thinking that death is going to pass over this house because the God of all glory is dwelling in this house, right? And it's like the football slogan. I don't know if in the South we love football, right? And so everybody loves football. So if this example falls flat, I'm so sorry for you. But there's this commercial, and when you have home games, they call it your house, right? And you can't lose a home game. And then so they have these commercials where all the players get together. We must protect this house, right? Well, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit got together in the huddle, and they looked at you, and they said to each other, we must protect this house. And they realize the only way they can protect the house is if they can come and dwell in the house. And the only way they can dwell in our house is if their name is sanctified in our hearts and we partake of them. And the only way their name will be sanctified in our hearts is if we see they gave their own body up to be broken for us. Right. right. Because I promise you, somebody lays down their life for you and you will feel the love. Oh, yeah. You will feel the love, especially someone that you smacked across the face. Yeah, yeah exactly. It says some, some might consider laying down their life for a righteous person. Yeah. Someone might even think, well, maybe for a good person I will. It says God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ laid down his life for us. Isn't it notice how God demonstrated his love by Christ? That means Christ is God. Mm. And we've got this whole idea where Jesus laid down his life for us, which is true, but we don't connect that to everlasting father. Yeah. Because it says Emmanuel will come. And then it calls him Everlasting Father, right. Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father is there on the cross doing this. 
everlasting Father is giving his body up to be broken for you. When you see that, when you behold that, you become healed from death. And you eat, you partake of his body. That means you believe the God of all glory gave his body to be broken for me. He shed his blood for me. He shed his blood so that death could die inside of his body, so that he could make his house in me, so that his spirit could be poured out on me, and he could dwell in me and cause death to pass over me. Mm. That's what it means to discern the Lord's body. Paul talked about discerning the Lord's body. He talked about every time you take of this cup and eat of this bread, you are declaring forth the death of the Lord. That's what you're supposed to be thinking of. That's what it means to discern the Lord's body. You see, the Lord gave his own body up to be broken. When you take of the cup, you're showing forth the death of the Lord. Just like the Hebrews had the blood, and they were declaring the death of the Lamb. They overcome him by what? The blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. <laughs> That's what you're declaring, man. And it causes death to pass over you. Amen. You're filled with strength. Paul would go on to say some are weakly and some are sickly yeah. because they're not discerning the Lord's body when they come together. He's not just talking about they got a fever. Right. He's not just saying they have a sickness. He's talking about the weakness of trying to find life through your own strength. He's talking about the weakness that can come upon you from the effects of death, the sting of fear in your heart. Do you know all sickness comes forth from fear in the heart anyway? Yeah, it's one. proof. These bodies were not meant to deal with fear. Nope. And when fear can get in the heart, stress can get in the heart, it causes these bodies to break down. Well, Paul is saying, because y'all aren't discerning that God gave his own body up to be broken for you, to cause the death in this world to pass over you, the death in the world is stressing you out because you think it can blow your house down. And so you're weak. You're not filled with the grace of God. That's what he's talking about. I mean, seriously. Like, we busy sweating, sweating the blood. But God himself sweat blood for us. Oh, yeah. God put off death. It says Jesus died unto sin on the cross. He laid down death. He put death to death. He took death into himself, and then he nailed it to the tree. Right? And then he took death into the grave. When he came out of the grave, did he have any death? No. <laughs> we must protect this house. That's how he protected this house. Right? The home team. That, that's, what we're de that's what we're declaring every time we break bread and drink from the cup. We're declaring God himself has come to sup with us. God himself has made us his temple. He's made our bodies. The t and I want to draw this connection. So many times we think of God the person, and we don't connect it to his life. God is a person, but within God the person is an indestructible life. And when we say God made our bodies his temple, he made our bodies the temple of his indestructible life. That's what he did. He made our bodies the temple of his indestructible life to cause death to pass over you. The next time you're feeling afflicted, the next time you're seeing the death around you, the next time you're seeing the darkness in the world, right? What you're needing is to take communion. To discern the Lord's body, that the Lord gave his own body up to be broken. He absorbed that death that's stressing you out into his own self, that he's dwelling in you right now. He is keeping your house. You're in just in need of being stirred up by way of remembrance. You just need to remember God and what God did. That's all you need. And that death will pass over you, right? You're the temple of God, right? Does that make sense? Great mystery, but I'm talking about the church. Yeah. <laughs>
Yeah. The God who sees you. The God who sees you. He sees you. He sees if you're experiencing affliction, he sees you. If you're experiencing weakness in your life, fear, anxiety, stress, he sees you. Right? If you're experiencing some type of physical sickness or disease, he sees you. And he's come and made you his house. And he's come and dwelled in you to cause those things to pass over you. Right? God himself is in your midst. He is in your midst. And whatever death, whatever disease, whatever affliction is trying to come against your life, it cannot abide God. It cannot withstand God. It cannot fight off God. And God himself will make that thing pass over you. In the name of Jesus, fear is passing over you. In the name of God that made your body his temple, anxiety is passing away from you. Sickness is passing over you. Weakness is passing over you. The strength of God is born in you by the power of him and his Christ. That's what we should be thinking of when we take communion. It's not some ritual. It's not like, okay, let's get in a line now. No. Are we going to have real wine or grape juice? <laughs> I say these things. It's funny. And it's okay if we have that conversation. But what I'm saying is, is we've lost. It's a magnet. Listen, man. It's a magnificent. There's a whole lot of glory in thinking God himself shed his own blood. Oh, yeah. Go twist on that. What? What? I mean, what are you talking about? Well, Jesus is busy walking through John's gospel. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There he is nailed to the cross, and somehow that's not the Father anymore. <laughs> Where did we go? <laughs> yeah. Glory to God. That's it. That's it. If y'all have any thoughts. You're welcome yeah. to share. Yeah. That's a that's a new way of looking at communion for me, man. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it just it just opened up in my heart big time to see the union through the communion. What it was actually declaring the whole time. You know, and how and just the way that you said it was, we must protect the house. I can hear the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit saying, let us, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. let us protect the house. Mm -hmm. And that's the way he implemented by going, divorcing us from death. Yep. Yeah. Because we were married to death. Yeah. And he came and took on death and died away that death in order for us, according to Romans 7, in order that we might be married to another, yeah. that we might bring forth fruit unto God. So to be able to see the communion in that light is that is God's declaring something that this house now is protected by an indestructible life. Yeah. I could see that in my heart. Yeah. I could see Abba. You, you know when you say the yeah, spirit yeah. of adoption, you was talking about that, that the spirit of adoption causes you to cry out, Papa. Mm -hmm. I can see that God is everlasting Father. Yeah. That word everlasting even means eternal life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So who's guarding your house? We don't have to guard our house. That's right. We don't. The strong man has already been uprooted. Yep. There is a stronger man that has come in oh, yeah. and plundered that man 
that was in this house. And now he's he's in charge of the house. Yeah. So I don't have to be concerned about my house anymore. That's right. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. We don't have to be concerned about our own life Amen. because he has taken up residence. That's right. Your maker is your husband. That's the whole point. That's right. And he's omnipotent. Yeah. Yeah. In ancient times, that's what the husband, it was this, they, they, provide, they provided the provision for life. You came under their provision of life, and it was pointing to God. Even in marriage ceremonies, you drink of the cup and you partake of communion together. And the whole point was in partaking of that, you're declaring the two are becoming one flesh, which is what communion in the scriptures was always declaring. The way you're declaring to the destroyer, that he is passing over you is because you're declaring yourself to be one body with God through Jesus, through the blood of the Lamb. You're declaring yourself to be one flesh with God. That's really what we, that's all we need a revelation of. Yeah. Right? God is in your house. God is with you. God is in the midst right now, causing death to pass over you. Whatever death you think has come to your house, God is there with you, causing death to pass over you. Oh, yeah. Right? That's what communion is supposed to fill your mind with. That's what we need to be stirred up by way of remembrance. That's why he says, whenever you gather, do this in remembrance of me. All of our church gatherings, if we're actually talking the gospel, are taking communion. Oh, yeah. You're remembering the, the Lord's body. You're discerning the Lord's body, yeah. right, is what you're doing. You're partaking. Jesus said, my flesh is meat indeed. That's what he's talking about. My body broken for you is meat indeed. What meat? The kind of meat that will fill you with life, right? Because when you see God himself gave his body up to be broken for you, you begin partaking of him and his life. Listen, man, that will give you the life that you need. That will feed you, right? Yeah. That will be your daily bread. This is my daily bread, right? 